comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, would you join me as we pray? God, we are uh, here before you, and our hearts are laid bare before you, our lives are. Like Jonah, uh, we believe that we can hide or run, but that's a fool's errand. And why would we, why should we, when you're here to love us and you're here to uh, save us and restore us? And so we pray you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we left... This story of Jonah, much like when you're watching a series you love, and it's this high drama moment, and they say, to be continued. So that's what happened two weeks ago. So we need to pick up. But first, uh, like a faithful uh, narrator, I have to recap. And uh, so I want to do that. So Jonah is a Hebrew prophet, and God has sent him on a mission with a message. And that message is composed of the righteousness of God, but also the mercy of God. And and, uh, Jonah is sent to a people that are very unlike him, unlike him racially, unlike him spiritually, unlike him politically, and he doesn't like them. Uh, They are enemies. He would much rather be proclaiming a message of destruction than a message of redemption. And so he decides to run. And he gets to a boat. He forgets, though, that God actually rules the sea. Gets on the boat, and he finds himself in the company of a group of pagan Canaanite sailors in a fierce storm, who ironically outperform him morally and spiritually. They have more empathy, they have more concern for him, they have more awe and respect of his God, fear of the Lord, is the phrase that's used. And when they learn that the storm is a result of Jonah's disobedience, they are appalled. (laughs) They have no uh, relationship with the Lord of Israel, but they are appalled. I wish, if in heaven we're allowed to watch videos of things that are past, or maybe we can sort of like in a Harry Potterish way enter back in, you know, put our heads in that water and <clears throat> go down, if you know what I mean. Um, 
But I would so love to be there in that moment where the waves are crashing, the wind is blowing, the rain is slanted, you know, they're and over, and you're far enough away not to hear the dialogue, but their hands are just moving, you know, when someone turns away and walks back and they're finally told by Jonah it's his fault and they're just beside themselves. They're shocked. They don't know what to say. So that's where we pick up the storyline. And it reminded me of another storyline of a great film, Academy-nominated film, a film called The Green Mile. Uh, Meg and I were flipping around a month and a half ago and came up on it and just watched about 10 minutes of this, and I, I was like, this is too good. I have to go back and rewatch it. You know, I just didn't want to get it all at that moment. Uh, it's a fantasy crime film uh, based out of the book by Stephen King. Tom Hanks plays a death row uh, corrections officer in Louisiana. And Michael Clark Duncan, who is an imposing six foot five, 300 pound African American actor, plays a simple, um, a simple but humble prisoner who has been brought to the prison to death row. And he possesses this strange supernatural ability where he can heal people. But whenever he heals people, it comes at a cost to himself. And two storylines then unfold in the film. One is the growing understanding that this man is innocent of the horrendous crime with which he is charged. But the second one is that he is on a path of substitutionary sacrificial love. That's why he is there. That's why he came. I read uh, a quote uh, last week, and this is it. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Man, that is really good. All life-changing love is some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. And that is the message that sits at the heart of the Christian message and at the person, the heart of the person of Jesus Christ. But this is the thing. The very people that are closest to that message can become the most short-sighted and resistant to it being spread to those that they deem unworthy. It's almost like that they get uh, so close in proximity to the grace and mercy of God for so long that they begin to have a sense of entitlement over it, knowing who is worth having it and who is not worth having it. And we see that in the life of the prophet Jonah. And I think if we're humble, we see it in our own lives. And sometimes what God has to do is actually throw you overboard to make you a vessel of mercy. He has to toss you overboard so you can recapture it. So that you might see God's substitutionary love. The intent of it and the impact of it. So let's look at those two things together. The intent of it or the purpose for the substitutionary love. Now, I think it's tempting at this point in the account to read this passage and think, well, this is, this is what happened. Jonah had this huge heart change, 
And he now is going to toss himself overboard because he realizes he's been a scoundrel and he wants to love these guys. And I would say, if that's your understanding, there's more depth here than that. That's not quite what's going on. After they discover the reason for the storm, they ask Jonah, what should we do? Because he's not only the guilty party, he's the expert. I mean, they don't know the God of Israel, right? I mean, they're guessing here. Like, what are we going to do? We don't want to get in more trouble here. And Jonah shocks them and says, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Then the sea will get quiet. And partly out of fear of the Lord and partly out of compassion, they say, no, that can't be the answer. So they row with all their might to get back to the shore to, you know, have him get off there. But it's clear as the tempest gets worse that God doesn't want Jonah delivered on the land. He wants him delivered into the sea. And at this point, I think modern people go, well, there you have it. Isn't it, isn't it this way? The God of the Bible is no different than any other God. He's got to have his pound of flesh if someone doesn't do what he wants. He's vengeful. He's angry. And if that's your thought, I, I would say uh, hold on for two reasons. One, because that's not Jonah's perspective. But two, what we see is that God doesn't want Jonah in the sea so he can kill him. He wants him in the sea so he can save him. He sends a vessel of mercy in the shape of a really big fish. And here i got to take a moment. I told you a couple of weeks ago we'll talk about the fish. Okay. A couple of you said, when are we talking about the fish? I don't have a lot to say about the fish because neither does the book. But I will say this. Uh, I said this in the first week. Maybe your thought is, come on, this is the reason that you got to say this thing is a myth. It's a legend. Yeah, it's useful, but th- that's what it is. And I, again, would plead with you to say, the only problem I have with that is scholarship and and expertise. Because the people that study that sort of literature will tell you, this does not bear the marking of ancient myths. It just doesn't. I mean, let me give you a modern uh, analogy. You know, maybe you've seen one of these films like Babe. Has anybody seen Babe? Only a few of you have seen Babe. Okay, that's all. How about Marley and Me? Anybody? Pet lovers have seen that, right? Oh, don't make me watch that. Um, but, you know, the point is, if, if you're writing a fiction and there's like an animal in it, you're going to make a lot of the animal, right? You make a lot of the fish. That's part of the myth. That's part of the legend. You know, that's part of the whole reason why the thing's in there. But, you know, this, the fish is barely mentioned. It's just like a historical footnote. And he was swallowed by a great fish. Now, maybe then you'd say, okay, but that's just impossible. Listen, you need to understand that the debate isn't whether there's a fish big enough to swallow a human being. There is. A sperm whale can swallow you if it wants to. The debate is, can someone actually live and survive? And, of course, the answer is naturally no, zero. But that is where the miracle comes in. That's the supernatural edge. I would just say to you, you know, incredible things happen all the time in the world. I mean, uh, take the gnats, for instance. <laughs> I mean, big fish, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're older season, and I, I say that as a fan, okay? Um... 
But, you know, it, that's really not the thing. The, the issue is the miracle, and I really think we have to say, if you're imagining that Jonah is sort of like reclining on a bed of seaweed eating sushi, you got it wrong. It's more likely that he is almost suffocating, barfing his guts out, barely surviving until that fish spits him up. But either way, that's the miracle part. And so... But again, the fish isn't the main deal. Because God sends the fish to teach Jonah and to teach Israel and to teach you and me of whale-sized mercy. That's why the fish is there. To teach us on substitutionary love. The old church father Christostom said this, They threw overboard the wares that were in the ship into the sea, but the ship was not getting any lighter. Why? From the weight of sin. For nothing is so heavy and onerous to bear as sin and disobedience. That's why the ship was sinking. And if Jonah gets any credit, any slaps on the back, is that I think he knows that and he doesn't debate it. He knows he deserves to go into the drink. He doesn't make any fight about it. He doesn't make any debate about it. Maybe it's starting to dawn on Jonah that his uh, judgmental heart toward God, that his prejudice, that his callous for a good time until they found him, he didn't really care if other people went down. Not to mention his entire life of moral failings was actually... Worthy of judgment. That's a, that's a hard thing for modern people. You know, I say this as a uh, champion and, and uh, supporter and extoller of, you know, uh, the discipline and the field of therapy and counseling. But one of the struggles we have in our modern day is we have a therapeutic category for everything in our life. And so it really makes it difficult for us to think about moral responsibility. Maybe the ancients had a little bit more clarity there. He understood that. One of my favorite Westerns is the film Unforgiven. And if you've been here long enough, you know, you're going to say, I know the quote you're going to use, Glenn, because every couple years I have to just tell it. So I'll, I'll ask you to join in at that point. But the story, if you haven't seen it, is about an aging outlaw, a killer, Clint Eastwood. And he gets away from that life, and he's farming, but he gets tempted back in for one last job. And really, at the climax of the film, he's got this group of guys, and there's just been a bloody gunfight, and there's this young upstart guy that thinks he's like Billy the Kid, but really he confesses, that was the first time I shot somebody. And he is just uh, totally broken up, and he's oscillating back and forth between trying to justify it and going, what have I done? You know, he said, he's never going to breathe again. And Clint Eastwood, I'll leave out the uh, explicative, even though it, makes, it really makes the line what it is. I, I, <laughs> I thought I'm just going to say it, but I'm not going to say it because, and it's not really, really uh, bad. See, now, you're, now I'm into the, you're going to say, well, what do you think is bad, Glenn? Anyway. <laughs> but essentially, the edited version is this. He says, when you kill a man, you take all he's got and all he's ever had. And then the young guy says, but I guess they had it coming. And Clint Eastwood said, 
He said, we all got it coming. We all got it coming. There's a certain, um, I, well, let me just ask you, can you go there with your life? Is there some part of you that can say, you know, I, I got it coming. I couldn't stand before an all-loving, all-just, all-righteous God. I couldn't stand. If you kept a record of sins, where would I go? And uh, not only are we deserving to go in the drink, but God is deserving to be angry and to even judge. Now, this is where we, you know, we get sort of crossways. We don't like an angry God, but we do like an angry human that cares about justice and righteousness, don't we? I mean, there's a time for that. And we applaud that sort of courage that we've seen. But we don't like in God, which only leads me to conclude that we don't think we're unjust or unrighteous. Because his anger puts us off. But as I said, the reason God is sort of putting us there, and maybe the reason that I'm pushing you there, is for you to see that God's intention isn't to have you drown in your sins It's to send mercy that's so big and giant to swallow you up and to save you. His intention is substitutionary love, and that gets us to the big point, right? The greater Jonah. Uh, During Jesus' ministry, he was constantly battling with the religious leaders. They would badger him and say, if you're who you are, you know, we want to see more miracles, more signs. What they didn't want, what they couldn't receive, was mercy. They had the spirit of Jonah. They didn't like the way that he extended mercy to pagans, to immoral people, and to sinners. And this is what Jesus said. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Talking about his death. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now when Jesus said that, he was making one similarity and three differences between him and Jonah. The similarity was that the substitutionary act of Jonah going overboard did symbolize and foreshadow Christ and his sacrifice. That's what Jesus meant in the belly of the whale. He would die and he would raise. But there are three ways it's not. While Jonah resisted the mission to proclaim God's mercy to a needy people, Jesus, the Son of God, fully accepted it. And while Jonah was hurled into the sea but saved, Jesus was hurled into the sea of God's wrath and died, did not live. And lastly, while Jonah was guilty and yet was saved and shown mercy, the greater Jonah was innocent but only showed judgment and wrath. What this big fish in this story is telling you and I is that the fulfillment of God's substitutionary love 
is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that, my friends, is the game changer for you and I. When you come, when you're deep, and maybe I'm catching you at a time where you are in the drink, you are in the sea. You feel like you're drowning both in your circumstance, in the chaos, in the waves are over your head. But I need to tell you, the reason you're in that place isn't because God wants you to die. It's because he wants you to see that he's a savior with great mercy. And that's how we become vessels of mercy. Let's look at the impact to close of substitutionary love. Now, we do start to see some signs that Joan is changing, but we've got to go through the whole book to see that. I don't want you to get ahead and say, this is the, you know, it's, it's left a little bit in the lurch. I'll tell you that much. But the impact can really be seen in these pagan sailors. So let's look at them briefly. First of all, you see the impact of the substitutionary love by the fact that they are in touch with their need for mercy. I went to an event this past week with a group of brothers here from the church uh, at the Trinity Forum, and it was uh, Jamie Smith lecturing on Augustine. And he said that for Augustine, the very first grace or mercy is knowing that you need grace and mercy. That's like the first sign of it, knowing that place of need. And the sailors are having that small r revelation, right? They certainly are in touch with their humanity and their finite nature. They know, man, I I can't handle this storm. They're waking up morally to what's just and right. You hear them calling out to God, this Lord who they barely know. And I think there's similar things we see with respect to our need. How do you know that the substitutionary love of Christ the mercy of Christ is operating, that you're not going the other way. You're not having a hardening of the categories, right? A hardening of the heart. Well, one is you find that the mercy of God is just making you a softer person, a little bit more merciful with people, a little bit more kind with people. The other thing I think it shows, uh, reveals itself, is the company we keep. It's not by coincidence that God brought Jonah in the company of people that he detested culturally and racially and morally, that he couldn't say. It's not by chance that that's where the mercy of God is preached to him. And I would say the same is true for us. How can you tell the mercy of God is at work in your life? Because he sets you around people that aren't like you, culturally, sociologically, economically. He sets you in that context because he wants to teach you mercy. And lastly, there's a discipline of weakness that develops. Uh, Last week, we had the privilege of Randy Neighbors preaching. And for those of you who don't know, Randy really is in many ways a giant in this denomination. And I asked him to to come to pre-service prayer. And he came And the thing that struck me the most about his prayer was the way it resounded with weakness and vulnerability and dependence. And I thought, you know, how do you get that? Because as Andrew said, he's a very bold guy. He's a strong guy. 
He's had an amazing ministry. He's, you know, uh, reti- he's in his quote-unquote retirement phase, but as his life draws closer and closer, and I'm not saying he's on his last years. I hope he, he said, you know, he's like, gee, Glenn, did you think I'm not saying, here's my point. The trajectory is more and more dependent. A discipline of weakness. I'll tell you why it convicted me, because this year I feel like one of the things that God is putting his finger on in my life is uh, a lack of dependence. A lack of discipline of weakness. What I mean by that is you might say, Glenn, do you believe in the mercy and grace of God? And I would say, hallelujah, I do. Oh, man, I believe I need it. I believe I'm saved by it. I believe it's what I ought to preach. But if you look at my day to day, is the first thing I wake up, you know, am I a man that goes like, <gasps> mercy? I'm like, where's my iPhone? I wonder, you know, I wonder what happened with the score last night. I mean, you know what I mean. And then uh, when I sit down, it's not like uh, I'm famished. I need to have the mercy of God before I can leave. It's like I'll grab something going out the door. I don't know if any of that resonates with you. If mercy is something that's reactive in your life, Like, basically, you find the mercy of God only when you're reacting in crisis or bad circumstance. What you need is actually a proactive discipline of every day being weak. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So I think we see that with a sign of mercy. But lastly, it's the impact of worship. They called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Don't lay on us innocent blood, O Lord. Uh, you have done as it pleased you. I understand God's sovereignty. They picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, a couple things there, just to understand what happened. First of all, they're referring to God, and the author saw fit to put this in, I think to communicate that their knowledge of God had moved beyond basic force, deism, general God, Because Yahweh is the name of God for people that understand him personally and as a savior. They start referring to him as Lord. They have moved beyond the idea of a tribal God. Right? This is the very thing that Jonah is struggling with. Jonah is so steeped in his nationality and all these different things. But these guys let it go. It, It just makes me think, you know, one of the signs of worship is we can hold loosely our culture our dominant culture, whatever we have in ourselves. It it is ironic, isn't it, that Jonah's anti-missionary effort is having a wonderful effect on these uh, guys. But, you know, second of all, it says they fear the Lord exceedingly. And that's different than fear of the storm. This is a new fear. This is what God wants to do in your life. He wants to give you a new fear. Can I get an amen? I don't know, Glenn. I don't want any more fear, right? I got anxiety. Well, the gospel teaches that perfect love casts out fear. There is a fear that's actually joyful and delightful. You know, I don't know how to explain this. I was trying to think of worship and all the things that we, you know, the fear of the Lord, right, is not only on respect, but you're nervous. Kind of like when I, you know, I stood before Meg on our wedding day. And uh, I think we were both trembling a bit. Uh, right? It's a fearful thing. 
to stand before um, a beautiful person you're going to marry. I'm talking about you, honey, at that point. <laughs> I thought I'd better, cl- better clarify that. Better clarify it. Right. But they, they go on to make vows. So let me, let me piece this together, right? Because you're like, Lynn, where, where, where are you going with this thing? Let me piece this together. So they worship, they call in the name of the Lord. It says they made sacrifices. Uh, most likely that's when they got back to land. We can't believe they're making sacrifices on the boat. They had nothing to sacrifice with. And also in that day, you didn't do sacrifices outside of temples. It could have been they made their way to Jerusalem. But they weren't foxhole Christians, so to speak. Because foxhole Christians, people that get in a jam and cry out to God, they, don't make, they make vows in the moment, not after. But they make vows after they've been delivered. And so whether they fully come to know the Lord of heaven and earth, they're on a road. They're on a road of worshiping. They have been wowed by the greatness, the sovereignty, the presence, and the mercy, and the beauty of God. And that is where you and I are aiming. Last week I left worship. And, you know, worship is a journey. If you come on any given week and you're like, hey, you know, I don't know, I just... You know, uh, you're normal. I'd love to tell you that, 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 that I don't experience that, but I'd be lying. You know? And you sit there and go, God, I need you to sort of work in me and warm me up. Now, how is that going to happen? Someone guilting you? No, nah, it's not going to happen that way. It didn't happen for those Canaanites that way. But what does it look like when it happens? Well, I think we have some things that remind us of it. You know, uh, you know, if you could have been at the last game when the Mystics won, or that game five for the Nets, or, you know, about a month and a half ago, I had a chance to see John Mayer. You know, and you're kind of sitting there as he's soloing. He's the only guy that gets away soloing that long. You know, guitar players are just envious of him. You know, you're, you're listening to that. Or yesterday I played at a wedding reception. And here you have, you know, both the sort of the beauty and the community and the commonality and the celebration. All of these things we're supposed to taste week after week. In fact, God planned that we get to have that experience, a taste of it, week after week after week. I think that's one of the things that the mercy of God ought to produce. You know, the law of God won't produce it and the guilt of God won't produce it. But as long as the mercy and grace of God flows freely in these four walls, we find ourselves changing and growing. So, in close, uh, we have the story of substitutionary love before us in the form of a great fish. And um, let's go under. Let's not be afraid to go under so God can bring us up. Father, I pray you would help us. Help us to uh, know that you're bringing us down to bring us up. In Christ's name, amen.